The number one priority uh, for Australia, including its training system, will be get, to get the economy back on its feet and get people as uh, skilled and ready to perform workers as quickly as the movement restrictions are lifted. Hello and welcome to Vocational Voices, the official podcast of the National Centre for Vocational Education Research, or NCVER for short. I'm Steve Davis and today's topic is the role of skill sets in the VET system. Our Vocational Voices today are Simon Walker, Managing Director, NCVER. Hello Simon. Hello Steve. And Jenny Lambert, Director, Employment, Education and Training and Director Tourism at the Australian Chamber of Commerce and Industry. Welcome to you too, Jenny. Hello Steve. Now as many listeners will know, the, the basic building blocks of the VET system in Australia are units of competency. Uh, each of these units consist of particular learning outcomes and their application in the workplace. And when these units of competency are connected together into particular sets that sit below a full qualification, we call them skill sets. And today we're going to focus on how these skill sets, which typically enable someone to perform particular jobs or functions, are likely to take on extra significance as Australia responds to the shifting workforce demands and challenges, particularly in the health sector at this time of COVID-19. Simon, I'll start with you. In in recent times, pre-COVID-19, how significant had skill sets become in the workplace, especially in regard to lifelong learning and these things called micro-credentials? Well, I might start with what we understand a definition of a micro-credential to be, and the short answer to that is we actually don't have a formal definition. Nonetheless, uh, consistent with the data that we collect and as put into Peter Noonan's report on the AQF, he used two types of skill sets. One is the training package skill set and the other is an accredited short course and they are formally recognised in the national training system and in the absence of anything else he would regard those as micro-credentials and it's a good place to start. Um, With both of those programs as we call them, they've actually been very underreported, we've discovered, and we now know by looking at the full range of participation in the edu- in the training system, that there are in fact a lot more skill set activity going on, but they're not being reported as such. I'll give you an example. There are some skill sets which are just one subject. A, a good one, a good example of that is the responsible service of alcohol. We have a certain amount reported to us formally, but we know by looking at the data that in fact a great deal more is going on out there as well. So to give you a sense of the numbers, the responsible service of alcohol is about 26,000 that is formally reported to us as enrolments. But by digging a bit deeper into the data, which doesn't formally recognise some of those programs, we find out there's at least 100,000 or 200,000 more enrolments going on out there. So I know it's a little confusing, but the reality is that what is formally reported to us are fairly small numbers of skill sets, around about 80,000 a year. But if we scratch the surface a bit deeper, we find that there are in fact millions of enrolments in skill sets of one form or another. Now, that's really going to be interesting and inform our chat a little bit later when we think about 
employing micro-credentials as part of our response to COVID-19 and also uh, in re recovering from it. But before we get to that, Jenny, uh, from your perspective as Director Employment Education and Training for the Chamber, uh, what have been the emerging trends in relation to demand for these micro-credentials and, and have any particular sectors adopted them more than others? Well, I think you can put the demand um, for skill sets into two baskets. Uh, the first is a, is a general view that short courses delivering uh, in a punchy way, in a, in a, in a resource-managed uh, way, um, a, a series, a set of skills that's needed uh, by employers, whether they be formally credentials or micro-credentials in the system or whether they just be short courses that are using um, the VET uh, competency units as a basis of teaching, um, are really important. And, and, and they may or may not be recorded in the system or be delivered in accordance with the way that, you know, the system formalises them. Um, so that whole issue of short courses is going to be in high demand everywhere. Uh, as we uh, ramp up upskilling and, and lifelong learning to meet the needs of, of the future workforce. Um, the, the second basket, the primary drivers of skill sets in terms of the absolute numbers, and Simon gives an excellent example of that, is the Responsible Service of Alcohol program. But there are many other um, you know, short courses or skill sets uh, that, are, that are meeting licensing or particular uh, you know, credential needs for example, in, um, in the aviation package, there are a lot of skill sets there that meet the needs for the Civil Aviation Standards Authority. So, you know, th you know there is there's a whole range of sort of, you know, needs to meet particular licence. Uh, and that's the second basket. You know, in between those two things, of course, there, there are... There are growth areas, for example, with skill sets in the supporting the National Disability Employment Scheme, where, for example, Queensland has agreed to fund skill sets in those areas, and that can certainly drive where you can get access to funding. That will also drive formalising, um, you know, baskets of skills into formal skill sets. What makes these uh, these uh, these upskilling, these short courses, these micro-credentials so attractive? Is it getting some niche skills that are needed or is it the speed as aspect of being able to respond quickly to a new need that the, the, the bigger, more structured courses aren't offering at this point in time? Well, I definitely think it's, it's about um, speed and cost of delivery and being targeted on what skills are needed for a particular, um, you know, work outcome. So in, in, in the space of, like, you know, the responsible service of alcohol, it's a particular legislative need which everybody who works in a licensed uh, premise needs to have. And that's what drives it. Um, so the, there are responsible service of gaming, there are other, you know, um, licensed white cards, you know, other licensed... You know, the traffic con uh, controllers that operate the stop-start um, signs in the roads. I mean, they all have a need that drives uh, the need for those those um, students to get that qualification in order to access those jobs. But they don't need a whole qualification to access those jobs. So for them, it's a way of, of accessing the jobs in, in a, in a cost-effective way and also in a timely way. Yeah, just to add to Jenny's comments, 
when we had a look at uh, the full range of data to see what else was out there that wasn't formally reported, what we can see quite clearly is that the majority of enrolments in skill sets are around safety and compliance and, as Jenny's pointed out, licensing, but the licensing of itself is around safety and compliance in the main. And they are, we think, uh, in a provisional view, around about two-thirds of all skill sets have some safety or compliance component to them. Mm. Well, th- that then brings us to uh, the the uh, aspect of this discussion uh, in current times. You can't listen to the news, read any news coverage without COVID-19 and reactions to it, uh, guidelines, etc. So here we have a situation where everyone's doing their best to flatten the curve, curve to make sure that our health system is not stretched beyond capacity. But internally, there must surely be increasing demand on certain skill sets. And there are uh, humans delivering these skills who are becoming fatigued and, and stretched beyond what they would normally expect. So how does something like these short courses, micro-credentials, these skill sets approach uh, apply or could apply to help us cope with this demand? Jenny? Oh, there'd be no doubt there'd be short courses happening as we speak um, that will be delivering to existing uh, health workforces uh, reminders, upskilling, uh, you know, to help them to deal with, you know, um, the personal protection equipment, the way that they should be handling patients who are confirmed with having COVID. Uh, you know, even though they may have covered some of those aspects in their courses, there'd be a whole range of upskilling um, presentations. There's a whole range of resources departments of health in each state have issued to remind people how to deal with these issues. Uh, the, the the question will be, and, and it's interesting that the Australian Industry and Skills Committee has set up a subcommittee to allow for the rapid uh, approval of skill sets and, and qualifications that may be arising from the current crisis. Uh, but it, it may be that, that even even that process may not then deliver a formal credential process outcome for, for COVID. I mean, we've got to remember that there's a lag in terms of people, you know, you know, starting to deliver those courses, you know, students going through them and coming out the other end. Let's hope that, um, you know, the, the, the curve of the crisis is, um, is well and truly over in the next couple of months. So it may not be that the system will, will be able to work through all that straight away, but there is absolutely no doubt that as we speak, there will be short courses being delivered now, of which the VET system's competency units will be useful in that, um, but um, but it, it, it will ha- it'll have to be happening now, and that's you know part of the response that's needed for the crisis. You mentioned before that uh, people in authority are having to uh, fast track the approval of uh, making use of short courses to to quickly help people ramp up because we are in a crisis. Do you think that would also stretch um, across sectors as far as policymakers are concerned to lift their gaze to allied health uh, sectors to see if people there could be uh, quickly brought up to speed with some niche skills to help support others in the more central aspects of the health sector? Um, yeah, potentially. I mean, I think the issue will be how, how the system 
formally will be used in that way or whether it will be more informally used in that way. And, I, and that, will, that will just depend on, uh, you know, that it doesn't matter how rapidly the system can update these things. That, you know, the, the needs are now and so the Departments of Health and, and, and other um, people in authority will be, will be looking at how to make these solutions very quickly happen. Um, but there's no doubt that the um, what will be interesting in this um, rapid uh, response of of, uh, of the new process the Australian Industry and Skills Committee has set up that it, it probably will deliver some some uh, medium term and when I say medium term I still mean in the next, some, some medium term outcomes for um, for to help the crisis and it certainly will be a very interesting learning for for the way that credentials and micro-credentials are approved going forward. I am aware right now that governments, and Jenny has mentioned the Australian Industry Skills Committee, which is an arm of government that approves products, including skill sets, are very much turning their mind to the urgent needs of how they can skill up the health workforce now. They are also looking, however, at what happens when we come out of this crisis and what would be the role of micro-credentials to be able to get uh, sharp, short training programs up to get people back into employment. So there's two aspects to this. I think one of the challenges for the health sector in particular, but arguably all sectors, is the vet sector has a, a high focus on practical training. And if you were to take, uh, for example, CPR, which would require at the very least some simulation of uh, performing CPR, at the moment, we're moving most of this online. So how online training can translate and still deliver the appropriate outcome for some training that would otherwise be done either in a classroom setting or in a practical workshop setting is going to be a challenge for the sector. Jenny? Yes, it's. Uh, I think Simon makes a uh, very strong point, and and similarly, a lot of the training packages also require workplace experience, uh, and it's going to be really hard for students to get um, what they call integrated learning or will experience within their courses. Uh, you know, because uh, you know these these times are hard, so there will have to be, I'm sure many, many um, workarounds um, to meet the short-term need. Now, that may be that many health institutions are willing to take people um, into their workforce who may not have finished the qualification, uh, but, but because they still have to get the work, um, work experience component completed, um, but then do the work experience and get the qualification concurrent to them actually being employed. Now, that will be subject to any licensing or registration requirements, but, you know, these are the types of things they might have to do to work around, and and there's no doubt that training providers are very challenged at the moment to deliver competency-based training, uh, you know, to where you, where you are, are um, assessed according to the way that you demonstrate that you have learned the skill. Um, you know, they're very challenging times to do that by distance learning for many of the packages. Yeah, and just on that, right now the national regulator, the Australian Schools Quality Authority, is doing their level best to look at how some of the requirements for the specifications of how you teach and assess a unit of competency can be relaxed to the degree that it doesn't 
negatively affect the outcome, but nonetheless give training providers a bit more flexibility to be able to deliver and assess those units without the literal requirements that currently exist in those training package specifications. So there is a lot of energy right across government and its various authorities that are absolutely acknowledging this unique and um, extraordinary situation we're in and making it as flexible as possible for training providers to deliver the sort of important skills we need now and not putting up barriers to both students and providers to be able to get those outcomes. Can we just reflect momentarily, philosophically even, on the lasting impact this period of time will have in the VET sector? Because we've covered previously on this podcast and in many reports, the glacial speed at which uh, often uh, courses are updated and respond to what's happening in the inverted commas real world. And here, we have swung the pendulum to the other end. Methinks the genie will never go quite back in the bottle the same way. So perhaps just a moment, Jenny, to reflect on uh, looking into the future once we're past this urgency of the COVID response. Do we see a very different mindset within the vet sector when it comes to considering how to change courses and, and adapt in the future? I certainly think we'll learn a great deal about uh, any change in process and what what is needed in in order to get approval. I think some of the fundamental uh, issues around speed of of getting packages changed are are not necessarily the way that they're you know sort of bundled. There's not a one size fits all solution. So so the, the ones the, the packages that are really slow to update. And, and then I think of two specifically uh, at the moment in construction and electrical. I mean, they have been many, many years to update. And I'm, I, we have to solve more than just the process of approval to get those type of packages to be updated more quickly. And we have to always remember that if we update packages too quickly, then providers, it's a very expensive process to constantly update. update. So there's always a balance uh, in here. But I, there's no doubt, though, that these, this, these challenging times will give us a lot of learnings that will help us in at least removing the administrative ba- barriers. What it may not help us with is the case-by-case industry issues that are holding back some packages from being updated as regularly as they should be. To add to that, uh, most people would know that there is a vet reform process going through the what they call a vet reform roadmap has been put out to public consultation um, as a piece of work obviously it's been uh, held up a little bit during this period um, but it, within a, a wide range of reforms are reforms around the speed to market of training products uh, which includes as Jenny said the approval process but it is it is more than that and there's a lot of commentary around even the design of the product being uh, made easier for changes to occur, being in more flexible units, or even grouping up units into a sort of wider range of outcomes so that you don't need to address specific tasks on a constant updating basis. So there's a whole range of activity that has started, arguably been put on pause, but we'll return to that uh, as a wider piece around how we develop uh, training products for the Australian national system 
and I'll just remind everybody, we do have um, 1,500 qualifications, another 1,500 skill sets that are out in the market and have been nationally endorsed, and yet only a fraction of those are actually used. So there are a whole bunch of other things that need to be brought to bear into the national training system. Maintaining, and I'll just add those two together, 3,000 products when only 15% or so are actually used to any degree is of itself a burden that we could probably do without. Leaving the health sector to one side, just in the marketplace at the moment, there are many people who have lost their jobs and the places they've worked for have ceased trading. So in the near future, as we start to return to normalcy, there will be uh, employees looking for a place to work and obviously some sort of micro-credential short courses are going to be a a necessity to get into perhaps a change of direction. So while we've got this challenge in the vet sector for the trainers, for their industry partners and for regulators to adapt at the moment, from a marketing perspective to communicate what courses are out there and to hopefully channel the right people to the right course, I see that as a very important phase that is in our near future. Jenny, from your perspective at the Chamber and overlooking uh, training, etc., what do you foresee in, in, in how we respond to that aspect of our challenge for the general population out there? Um, yes, I think there's so much of what you say is very important. I mean, the first bit is, is information clear and good guidance to people about where the jobs are and, and so the work being done in terms of the Careers Institute and the Skills Commission, understanding where the jobs are and and um, and getting getting good, clear uh, um, careers advice out to to people, and that's lifelong, not just students. Uh, and in this case, as you say, it'll be people coming off um, periods of unemployment that will need to look at where where the job potentials are if it's not back where they were previously. So, so all of all of that. Information is very important to be well curated and and presented in a way that's readily accessible by people who will be looking for that guidance. Um, The other really important thing in the recovery is making sure that the training providers, there is many training providers um, that survive this journey. I mean, they also will be having significant changes to their revenue at the moment and, and obviously we want them to come out the other side, both public and private providers, and being available. Um, but most importantly, the big issue is um, making sure that as many businesses as possible come through uh, the other side quickly and are employing as quickly as possible. And and, and I think that will, you know, we, we're, we're, we're optimistic that that will happen, um, provided that we, you know, we um, continue to get through the health, uh, you know, crisis as best we can. And hopefully, you know, we'll see that employment and training come back quickly. One of the things that will come out of this and the crisis itself is perhaps a catalyst is perhaps changing the mindset away from a compliance uh, need for skill sets in particular, and which is quite clear in the data, to something that's not just compliance. It's actually around some preliminary skills for any job, not necessarily a safety and compliance requirement. And that is, I think, where skill sets want to go and micro-credentials want to go. We don't want to just get stuck on licensing. We actually want them to be more broadly um, 
used right across the training sector for any one of a number of schools. And there is potentially an opportunity here for, as long as people are made aware, and I think Jenny makes a good point, is most people don't know that they need a skill set. And a lot of employers can often find it difficult to articulate just exactly what those skills are. So getting that information out to people if we need to get something done quickly is going to be key to this. But perhaps what will come out of that is a broadening of the scope of use of skill sets beyond what is, as I say, a fairly tight focus on safety and compliance. So in other words, you're saying not just safety and compliance, but looking at this Set this, this aspect of learning as part of lifelong learning, that sort of yes. mindset, isn't it? Yes. Right. Um, do you think, as in a Jekyll and Hyde scenario, we, we embrace skill sets, we know they're part of the, 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 the foundation blocks in getting together some qualifications, is there a dark side in focusing on these smaller units that, that costs us some of the benefits of an extended uh, um, arrangement of learning for a fuller uh, qualification. Uh, Jenny, what do you think about that? Um, well, it could go that way, but I, I mean, I'm hopeful that um, there'll be uh, upside, um, mostly upside, of, of the continuing uh, shift towards uh, skill sets and micro credentials, provided that we get better. Um, RPL and credit recognition processes in place. And this was the big uh, emphasis of what the recent uh, review of the Australian Qualifications Framework said is that, you know, really the um, we've really got to improve the way that people are recognised for the units of competency they have done. I think that's that's the big, um, big challenge that we, you know, the vet sector hasn't done as well as it could do and indeed, you know, education generally could do a lot better and so if we can get that uh, improved then then uh, people doing skill sets then which can ultimately be recognized as part of a broader qualification is is a win-win you know it gets it gets uh, a, a quick a quicker solution to immediate skills acquisition uh, with the medium to longer term objective of getting a qualification but it's it's trying to solve. If we can't solve that um, credit recognition process, then I guess there is a, a potential for people not to see a qualification outcome in the long term. But no, that you know that said, as long as they've got a great job and that they've got the skills they need and they're happy, then um, then everyone's uh, benefited as well. There's plenty of views around. Um, the notion of substitution of skill sets for qualifications and I, I think you'll find most people would still want to preserve them as complementary uh, aspects of the system. Young people in particular coming out with a broad-based qualification with a fuller range of skills gives them portability in the labour market and they form the foundation of their early journey in the labour market but certainly uh, as they go through their working life, then skill sets are going to be uh, a more convenient and more targeted way of continuing to upskill. And there's plenty of commentary about the nature of work requiring upskilling on an ongoing basis throughout people's working lives. So you wouldn't, I don't think, want to see skill sets take over the role of qualifications. I think they are complementary parts of the system. Would it, uh, I'll put this to both of you, uh, in the next 12 months, 
should we be in a place where we're looking at some reliable method of an individual skills audit for uh, each human in our economy so that they can go in with eyes wide open and make some good choices of, of either short or longer form courses that are available. Is there a mechanism for that individual skills audit right now or should there be? Jenny? I, I think there is um, some benefit of that, but I think it'll be individual driven. It won't be systemic. Uh, if individuals want to get recognition now, if they want to get credit now, They've got some mechanisms in place, but they're by no means perfect. Um, I think there is a long way to go, and certainly not in the next 12 months will these things be their priority. The, the, the number one priority uh, for Australia, including its training system, will be get, to get the economy back on its feet and get people as, uh, skilled and ready to perform work as, as quickly as the movement restrictions are lifted so that we can, you know, get ourselves going again. That will be the number one priority. So issue about, you know, sub-issues of the VET system and its micro-credentials and uh, issues of individual skills audit will be nowhere near as important as the core issues of getting the VET system well-funded and, and able to do the skilled workforce needed to get the economy back to where it was. Possibly one thing to add is there is some work going on um, about designing some information systems that will allow people to take their existing qualifications so or credentials, not necessarily a skills audit, but what they already have as a, as a credential. And then based on that, if they look to the job they might want to go into, what is the gaps in those competencies that might be required to take them from... Uh, being credentialed for one occupation into another occupation and there is a quite a bit of work being done uh, at the moment to see if they can get a more systemic way of mapping those things and give that information to people as part of a career advice process. So it's a bit early days to go much further than what I've just said but I do know that that work is underway. And I think that's something positive to look forward to as well. But in the meantime, as Jenny said, uh, yes, we need to be ready to hit go quickly as soon as these restrictions are lifted. Um, Jenny Lambert and Simon Walker, thank you both for this conversation. Thanks, Steve. Thanks very much, Steve. Vocational Voices is produced by NCVER on behalf of the Australian Government and State and Territory Governments with funding provided through the Australian Government Department of Education, Skills and Employment. For further information, please visit ncver.edu.au.